are listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Sasha Rush, who's an associate professor at Cornell Tech and researcher at Hugging Face. Sasha's PhD thesis is titled Lagrangian Relaxation for Natural Language Decoding, which he completed in 2014 at MIT. We talk about his work in the thesis on decoding in NLP, including methods based on Lagrangian relaxation and dual decomposition that he developed during the thesis. We start with an overview of what the decoding problem is, then go into the backstory of his thesis work and how it connects with today's methods. We cover a lot of interesting topics, such as the value of programming and engineering and machine learning research, visualizations, and of course, some great advice for researchers. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. To support the Thesis Review, go to patreon.com slash thesis review, or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Sasha Rush with Lagrangian Relaxation for Natural Language Decoding on the Thesis Review. Yeah, so in your thesis, you look into algorithms that involve discrete objects. So things like sequences of, of text, trees, and hypergraphs. And in machine learning, there's also continuous aspects to the different algorithms we use. So just a fun question to start. Do you kind of prefer discrete math or discrete type algorithms or continuous ones? Uh, That's a good question. Um, I tend to like discrete type objects. Um, And uh, I think I tend to think about phenomena in language behaving in discrete ways. Um, The kind of notion of a word by its nature has a kind of atomic sense to it. Um, And I think sometimes it can be a real confusing aspect for students who may be used to computer vision when they're trying to deal with the discreteness of language. Uh, The example I always like is it's a incredibly common student project to want to do um, adversarial examples in language. And uh, the kind of first sense is to say, oh, I'll just backprop and try to change my words. Um, And once you do that, you start running into lots of issues. Uh, Either it works too well and you suddenly change words to really have different meaning, or it doesn't really work at all and nothing changes. you very quickly start to realize how good our brains are at kind of modeling language and almost anything that's not exactly right uh, starts feeling very different right away. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's not to say there aren't continuous aspects of language or that continuous um, relaxations aren't an extremely important tool for dealing with discrete objects. But I do find it important to kind of remember at, at the end of the day, there are kind of discrete phenomena in, in language um, that, that are important. I mean, uh, phenomena like co-reference and anaphora, like we really are referencing something in the history. It's not, it's not kind of, mm. uh, kind of weakly attending to everything else in the past. There really was uh, a person that you're referring to as that man uh, in, in the setting. Uh, and, and that's, that's neat. I mean, that's mathematically interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, the other thing I noticed, and we'll probably discuss it over the course of this conversation is that ideas like dynamic programming come up and it seems to have a computer science type feel to it. So was your background in computer science or was it in something else like before your PhD? Yeah. So, um, I was a computer science major, um, mm. as an undergrad. Um, and, um, yeah, I was very interested in algorithms and, and things like that. And I think that, uh, there were a bunch of people, uh, kind of who worked on that or were interested in, in, in algorithms who I interacted with during that period. I think that was a fun aspect of, of natural language processing. Um, but I must say, I, I got interested in the topic, not because of the kind of machine learning aspects, uh, but because of the language aspect. Um, so I was, I was very interested in language. Um, I think maybe language drew me to computer science as opposed to the other way around. Um, it was always kind of the application I found most appealing. Oh, I see. So you knew pretty early on that you wanted to focus on, on this area. Yeah, I, I think so. I think I didn't know what this area was, but I was interested in... <laughs> linguistics and cognitive science, kind of that combination of things when I was an undergrad. Yeah. Um, my, my parents are actually both writers. So it was kind of that aspect was always kind of fascinating to me. And I think computer science is just the kind of way I like to study language, if that makes sense. How did you decide that you want to do a PhD uh, and to focus on research? Yeah. Um, so I wrote a thesis as an undergraduate uh, on uh, machine translation. So it was a topic I was interested in uh, when I was an undergraduate. Um, but when I graduated, I got really excited about kind of just working as a software engineer. Uh, so I went off and took a job uh, and I wrote a lot of JavaScript. Um, and it was really fun. I, I, I often tell people that, uh, yeah, working in industry can be can be very enjoyable. Um, and uh, a couple of years in, I, I, I kind of got just a little bit bored. Um, I didn't. I kind of wanted to work on slightly longer term problems, like kind of more than a, a couple months. Um, and at the time, there wasn't so much research going on um, in kind of standard big tech companies. Um, and in fact, I think there was actually a kind of, uh, kind of bias against that kind of thinking. Uh, mm. It's interesting to see now uh, how, how much that's changed. Um, so I, I started my PhD. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, had, I had met my advisor, um, 
um, Michael Collins as an undergrad, and I, I just, I, I really like the work he did and the way he thought. So I was very excited to get started. Yeah, and then, so your thesis focuses on uh, the problem of decoding. Maybe just as a bit of background, what is the problem of decoding? And from like a historical perspective, why did this become an interesting thing to work on and focus on during your PhD? Yeah, so the, the terminology decoding obviously comes from an electroengineering perspective uh, and kind of relates to ideas like Viterbi decoding um, and kind of Shannon's sense of uh, information theory and, and, and codes. Um, in practice, though, I take the modern form to be kind of synonymous with um, map inference, uh, kind of inference where you want to find uh, just a single uh, point estimate of what the, the, the whatever it is that you're trying to infer. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so in the case of natural language, um, commonly what people were interested in inferring was some sort of uh, structural information underlying uh, language. So going back to, well, I would say um, probably the, the, the mid nineties, there was a, a, a lot of interest in kind of predicting the internal hidden structure of language. Uh, and that meant anything from producing the part of speech tags for a sentence or tasks like named entity recognition, where you're trying to pull out uh, semantic representation of phrases, um, or uh, kind of the work that my advisor had done as a PhD student, which was uh, syntactic parsing. Um, and syntactic parsing always like was, for, for me, one of the most exciting problems in, in NLP because it had it had mm -hmm. lots of like really interesting aspects to it. Like it it had these kind of complex tree-like structures. It had kind of connections to the underlying linguistics uh, syntactic theory, and it had mm -hmm. um, kind of connection to this really like key data set in NLP of of the Penn Tree Bank. Um, so so those were the kind of things we were interested in inferring, and un underlying that was this kind of terminology of, of decoding of just trying to figure out the the best structure from our from our model. Yeah, that makes sense. Do these do the modern models like like BERT, which seem to learn kind of their own structure based on what people have probed from them? Do you have a sense that there's a, a true underlying structure in language, um, or is like the structure that humans use kind of somewhat arbitrary? And there's other useful structures. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, tend to be an empiricist on this sort of thing. So uh, it's not something I feel very dogmatic about. Um, I think maybe where I fall is that um, there, there is not kind of one true structure um, in all cases. Um, and that there's a lot of ambiguity that actually is not super important to represent that kind of arbitrary choices might be fine so kind of deciding between one or the other is not important. Um, that being said, I, I am a believer that there is a certain, I, I think probably the best term is compositionality that exists. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's unclear whether 
Byrne has captured all of that. Uh, but uh, I think that I don't want to go as far to the extreme of saying that kind of any representation of language is, is equally good. I mean, there, there, there do mm -hmm. seem to be kind of nicely falsifiable examples where really there is a, a very precise interactions going on under under the, the covers yeah yeah that is a good way of thinking about it that although the exact structure might not be unique there's certainly seems to be properties that should hold for the structures like compositionality for instance yeah i think that's right yeah and and so yeah this problem of decoding so like given a model extracting the uh, you know highest scoring <clears throat> sequence or highest scoring structure from it. Um, do you in any way think about this problem differently today? Sh should we include like different sampling methods that people use today? And with our models um, in translation, especially if you actually find the highest scoring sequence, sometimes it could be degenerate or too short. So have kind of the way that you've thought about the goals of decoding changed over time? It's an interesting question. Um, for, for me, maybe I'll start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I believe in a kind of deep sense that the only way to go about the process of talking about machine learning is to specify a model and that model is learned from data and the use of that model means some sort of inference about what it tells us about the underlying world mm. and separating those two out is, is kind of just critical to my worldview and the way I go about research. So. If you run a translation model and it produces some output and you don't like its output, <laughs> I do not think just in a kind of semantic sense that there is a thing that means modifying your algorithm to produce a better solution that you like. Mm. I think that that sort of thinking is kind of intellectually, uh, it leads to weird places. <laughs> like if you think something went wrong, then you have a misspecification of what your model is. Mm -hmm. And maybe under some other assumption or some other constraint, there was a better solution that fits it. I, I find it very strange when people say stuff like, I ran beam search and got a better solution, but it wasn't good, I liked it less as opposed to saying like, actually I had a constraint in my system that said words needed to be of a given length or sentences need to be of a given length. And I exposed that constraint as part of my decoding or inference process. Does that make sense? It's not, mm -hmm. it's, I, I, I'm not saying these are the wrong things to do. I'm just saying, I, I, I just find it very strange when, when people talk about algorithms as if they're, if they're their own thing, as opposed to derived quantities that come from some underlying modeling process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess like what I was getting at and maybe we're going too much into the weeds, but <laughs> so one thing I liked about your thesis is that you set up the kind of mathematical problem and you start with 
just a simple, you know, statement of we have some model and we want to find the argmax, so the, the highest scoring sequence. And so what I was wondering is like, should that actually always be the goal? Like your model might be good if you sample from it instead of finding the most probable sequence. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Um, well, I don't know. Actually, I'm not sure I want to go that far. I don't get why people sample from GPT-2 and call that good. Like, what good at what? Like, what sampling is a tool that we use to estimate quantities, right? We might do Monte Carlo sampling or important sampling, but but I'm not sure I understand what just sampling is as a thing. I mean, it's it's like good to write economist articles about, but but what is the what is the problem? I mean, like I think uh, I think even people who have a very probabilistic mindset don't think of sampling, I don't know, as an end goal in itself, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Let's. I I think we can we can agree that this is a good problem to solve then. Uh, this decoding problem. Uh, so then, like I said, like the thing I like is is you go through all the all the steps. So I think the next step in the process is introducing this technique called uh, Lagrangian relaxation, and this is kind of a theme throughout your thesis. So again, like, could you provide like a, just a high level overview of what this is and maybe the backstory of how this ended up being the focus of your PhD thesis. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me um, actually provide a kind of, uh, uh, first, a kind of a little bit more background to your last question, because I think mm -hmm. it's really interesting. So, um, yeah, at, at, at the time, um, I think these days, most training algorithms that people use um, in NLP uh, involve some sort of softmax or some sort of probabilistic estimation uh, at the time, though, there, there were a lot of approaches that during training only involved computing uh, these map quantities. So all you'd have to do during training is find the highest scoring structure, and you'd mm -hmm. use that to compute your uh, gradient and update your parameters. That's kind of gone out of fashion a little bit, um, particularly with the kind of use of GPUs, which make it much more efficient to, to do it through... Uh, other means. Um, but uh, I, I guess at the time, we were very obsessed with this problem of just finding the highest scoring sequence or finding the highest scoring parse tree. Um, and the, 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 way the, the way the thesis lays this out is that you have this trade-off where on the one hand, you want to kind of set up your model such that you can efficiently find the highest scoring structure under that model. But on the other hand, you want to set up your model so that its features could be as global as possible. You want to look at as much of the sentence and the structure you've constructed uh, in order to assign scores and interaction terms in that setting. So because of that trade-off, if you had crazier models, you it would be much harder to find the max. And if you um, if you wanted to find the max, you had to have a limited model. So that was kind of the world that we were living in at the time. 
Uh, these days, people have just kind of entirely thrown out the decoding part, and they just use the biggest model you could plausibly think of most of the time. Mm. Uh, or sometimes you see people go in the exact opposite direction and um, use the kind of simplest decoding procedure uh, that, that, that you might want at the time. But uh, at the time of writing the thesis, we were somewhere in between those two worlds. So um, the way we model this in the thesis is to write down this decoding problem as an integer linear program. So integer linear programs are extremely flexible. You can write down kind of almost any maximization problem over discrete variables that you'd like. And so it's super easy to write down an integer linear program for part of speech tagging or named entity recognition or parsing or translation or all these sort of problems uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and once you write down an ILP, there's one solution, uh, which is to go out and get a kind of generic ILP solver and run it over your problem. Um, and there were some groups that were doing that at the time, but there are some downsides of that. You're kind of reliant on uh, these kind of black box solvers. It's hard to kind of train with them. They can um, uh, be kind of opaque and sometimes they work, sometimes there are issues. Um, but there are kind of good general purpose way of at least checking that you're finding the right solution. And the literature we kind of were looking at was like a literature and kind of operations research and a little bit of economics that instead um, kind of proposed ways to derive algorithms directly for solving these problems. Um, and uh, the, the, the kind of general methodology goes under the name Lagrangian relaxation. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of what we applied. <laughs> I always like when I see the references to papers from uh, longer ago. So I, I guess this Lagrangian relaxation was used in 1971 for the traveling salesman problem. Yeah, I, I think references go back even even further than that. But the traveling salesman problem is a particularly a kind of nice example that, that I used to use in talks, which I liked a lot. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, it's obviously hard to discuss the exact mathematical details on a podcast, but sometimes there's like a useful takeaway intuition for how the method works. Do you think that there is one for uh, this Lagrangian relaxation? Yeah, sure. I can, I can describe the method. Um, it's actually interesting. We can, I think the, 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 the thesis writes about it in a kind of, I think a way that, that made sense in, in 2014. Um, I, I tend to think about it slightly different now. Um, because at heart, it really is a kind of continuous optimization problem. And mm -hmm. now that we have all these great tools for doing things like auto differentiation, uh, you can actually think about these in, in much easier ways. Um, so the way it works is the following. So um, imagine you have a really hard problem. Um, and I think the, the example I used in the thesis was, um, was I wanted to do um, a problem that did both a parse tree and language modeling at the same time. Mm. So it was a kind of tree-based model that would generate a tree and generate each word after each other at the same time. So this is a polynomial time uh, algorithm to decode this model, but it's a really slow one. 
And it's slow because uh, trees and language models interact with each other in ways uh, that require kind of keeping track of a lot of information in your dynamic program. But you can easily write this down as an integer linear program. You simply write down the integer linear program for tree-based parsing and the integer linear programming uh, program for language modeling. And then you write down a constraint that says they have to produce the same underlying sentence. Mm. So you have this complex integer linear program with a single kind of binding constraint. You then take that constraint and you say, I'm going to relax it. And uh, what that means is I, I kind of the same thing you would do in a kind of um, calculus class, which is just rewrite the optimization now with a Lambda Lagrangian term that says, try to find the best parse tree and the best language modeling, uh, but you're penalized by how much they violate each other. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. where the, the Lagrangian term comes in. And you then try to optimize that problem. And it turns out that the way you optimize that is you want to optimize with respect to this penalty term, lambda, as well. Mm -hmm. And the equation for doing that is such that uh, a gradient of your loss with respect to that lambda requires finding the best parse tree and finding the best generation of language. And so in PyTorch, you would just write those down as separate optimization problems, solve them, take a gradient of how different they are from each other, how much they violate, and then update the lambda based on that value. And uh, both of those problems um, facilitate uh, computing gradients. You could literally just do them in PyTorch, solve those two decoding problems, and then backprop through that. And you just keep on computing gradients until it turns out that they both agree with each other, in which case you can uh, show that you've solved the original integer linear programming problem. So that's really the main technique that we use throughout the whole thesis. So there is this nice mixture, almost going back to the initial question of you have a kind of discrete uh, structure that you want to find, and then you end up using uh, some form of continuous optimization for these uh, Lagrange multipliers. Yeah, that's right. And you can, there's a kind of nice way of visualizing it that you, um, you have this kind of discrete um, points that are represented as kind of extrema for the integer linear program. And you have this um, uh, kind of uh, polytope, polygon that you're walking around, which corresponds to a linear program. That's the relaxed space. You can take gradients there. Uh, and you're hoping that the solution to the continuous one yields you a solution to the discrete one. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And then you mentioned uh, having these kind of two goals, so wanting to get a parse tree and then also wanting to get a fluent sentence. So does this um, get into the idea that you have called dual decomposition? Yeah, so uh, Lagrangian relaxation is a kind of general method. And mm -hmm. the particular case where Lagrangian relaxation splits your problem into uh, decomposed subproblems uh, is often called dual decomposition. Mm, um, this is a technique that's been kind of discovered 
in, in many areas many times. And so it kind of has gotten different names from different communities. I see. And then, so at the time, like when you did this on the, um, you know, there's a few sections, so with different, different applications. So um, parsing, like you were saying, this joint decoding and machine translation in general, like how are you evaluating these methods and kind of what, um, what benefits did they end up bringing once you uh, came up with this idea and implemented it? Yeah. So um, we wrote our, the thesis goes through several different chapters, um, each outlining kind of classical decoding problem in NLP and proposing a solution or an approach utilizing uh, some sort of relaxation uh, or solving it. Um, for some of the problems, this allowed us to utilize much richer models than people had used at the time, which by itself uh, were difficult to use because of their um, decoding complexity. Um, but we were able to speed them up and uh, get improvements. So in, in one example, we were working on dependency parsing um, and we were able to produce uh, much higher order interaction factors for dependency parsing and improve the state of the art in that area. Um, for, for other problems, I think I was more just interested in uh, demonstrating what would happen if you truly optimize them. So, so in one chapter, I go through the process of trying to produce provably optimal solutions to beam search. Mm -hmm. um, and this would be very difficult to do with fully autoregressive models. But in the case of the translation models at the time, they uh, had a fixed dependency length of five previous words, which is still a pretty massive space if you really had a vocabulary to the fifth number of possibilities. But in, in practice, given how few um, five grams there actually are, you could like officially go through uh, not every possible one, but a, a large percentage of them to actually guarantee that you, you found an optimal solution to that problem. Uh, mm -hmm. which I actually thought was a really cool and, and interesting idea. Yeah. And then, so, for example, with the optimal beam search, um, I guess it was using this specific assumption on the type of model, or do you think that, like, loosely speaking, this could inspire some, uh, you know, technique for better beam search now with these more complex deep learning models that we use today? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that most of the approaches in the thesis really don't apply to things um, today. And, and, the, and the reason is the following. So um, in, in RNN, it's a structured model in that it, there's a combinatorial space of, say, translation outputs that it could produce. Um, so you have uh, basically a very large exponential number of possible sentences. But in theory, the RNN can score every single one of those different in arbitrary ways. So like a comma in one place could have a completely nonlinear uh, impact in everything else that's going on. So any of the, I mean, really the like only way you can find the optimal solution for an RNN 
is to enumerate every possibility. There's no, there, there's no scenario where there's any kind of speed up possible. Um, but, so that being said, I, I, I think there, there are two ways around that. One is um, we could allow some assumption that that is rare or that that doesn't happen too often, uh, which I think would be nice if we understood kind of like what what sort of uh, kind of modeling assumptions we could make. Um, the other thing that I've done in, in some recent papers is is just to break that and uh, say that there is an implied or an explicit assumption about what the interaction terms are. So uh, in a recent paper, we built a transformer model that was just capped in the distance it could look back uh, to a fixed distance. Um, and when you have that kind of assumption, you can do some really interesting things. Uh, you can build a really fast decoding model. Uh, so in mm -hmm. our case, we were able to build a model that was faster than a lot of a completely non-autoregressive translation systems while still capturing some of the history of the previous words. Mm, yeah. Was this the uh, cascaded, was it the cascaded transformer? It had this idea of cascades. Yeah, so we, uh, the actual model was, we call it a Markov transformer since it had this kind of Markov oh, right. assumption. Uh, and then we used cascades to, to try to speed it up in practice, yeah. Uh -huh, yeah. So there you're, you're still um, working on, uh, like you mentioned, machine translation, which was also in the thesis. In general, like how have the tasks that you think about or care about evolved over time? Um, I mean, like nowadays, do you think as much about uh, parsing as you would during your PhD? And have you kind of picked up other tasks that um, maybe drive different research ideas? Yeah. Um, so after writing my thesis, I went to um, uh, Facebook AI for a postdoc. Um, and uh, was kind of plopped down into this group that was extremely deep learning centric. And it was really a wake up call to have a sense of what they were doing and what they were interested in. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I tend to think as a PhD student, we think of these areas as extremely different from each other. But from my perspective, it was just kind of, a, mm -hmm. I don't know, different mathematical model to play with. Um, so I didn't, I didn't feel like it was so crazily different. Um, and, and when I was at, um, when I was at FAIR, I, I worked on a, a model for generating summaries, uh, using mm -hmm. a kind of seek to seek model. Um, and honestly, a lot of the kind of beam search in that paper, things like attention, all, all that doesn't look so different than the coding I was doing before. The kind of big difference was just learning how to deal with models that take a month to train uh, and kind of getting the details right about hyperparameter tuning. But the, the underlying system doesn't look so so different apart, I think. Mm -hmm. And so from your perspective, was it, um, was it still like a big shift that occurred once these deep learning models started taking off? Or like you're saying, was it kind of just you um, gradually move to using these models instead of the ones you were using before? Um, yeah, it was definitely a big shift. I mean, it was, uh, I think, hugely important. And I, 
definitely didn't um, expect the kind of second big shift. I, I think like the shift to pre-training was almost as big as, as the, the shift to, to neural models uh, mm. in terms of a kind of impact. Um, yeah, it's a good question. These days I kind of bounce between both of those worlds, um, kind of despite my attempts to discourage him from working on parsing, my student Yoon Kim did a, a lot of his thesis on, on aspects of, of syntactic structure and unsupervised grammar induction, uh, mm -hmm. which I found really interesting um, and kind of combined aspects of neural modeling with um, kind of uh, decoding. Um, what I try to do with my students is distill down explicitly what changed and, and try not to try not to like follow um, the kind of surface level changes and more like trying to isolate what the kind of uh, inherent changes are. So I tend to think a lot about how hardware and systems changed because I think that tends to be a driving factor behind the scenes. So mm. for instance, a lot of a lot of the methods that I thought about in, in 2012 relied on kind of assuming that the world was sparse, that there was some very small subset of this exponential space that corresponded to like the good parse trees. And if we just found that subset, we could exploit that property. And mm -hmm. GPUs really change the game because they say, just pretend everything's dense and you don't pay much of a cost for it. Like you're, you're doing language modeling. The vast majority, 99% of the next tokens have no probability of appearing. I mean, very trivial amounts, right? But just mm -hmm. compute the partition function anyway. It doesn't, it's not going to cost you anything. Just, just do it. <laughs> Uh, and I think that that mindset of just that like dense computing is cheap really is like a kind of key aspect behind lots of models. Like most of the attention in the transformer is not that important, but like we don't really know which is and which isn't. So it's like better to just brute force through it and um, and just use what what comes out. Um, so I think, I think that that's been a kind of interesting change in mentality, and so. If my students work on structured prediction now, I try to encourage them to, to think about how it, it works in a kind of modern sense. Um, and then obviously the other area was just things being continuous and, and continuous relaxations throughout. Um, that's still a, that's still something I'm not totally like um, sure about. Like um, a couple of years ago, I just was kind of assumed that kind of Gumball softmax type relaxations would just, I don't know, be the way that we would do mm. kind of any sort of like latent modeling, but it, it hasn't really paid off in, in a way that I've found very satisfying. And uh, I still often kind of um, kind of prefer a kind of explicit enumeration than any kind of uh, kind of clever relaxation of discrete variables. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of interesting things you said there. So first is uh, Yoon Kim was actually brave enough to come on the podcast in one of the first few episodes. So listeners can <laughs> go back and listen to that for more details. 
Um, and I actually wanted to ask about that connection, like reading through your thesis, it seems to me like after thinking so much about uh, these different types of parsing problems, uh, you know, these, you have all these nice uh, pictures of like trees and hypergraphs. Uh, and then I look at um, this library that you developed called PyTorch Struct. It seems like there's some similarity there and like maybe the experience that you had from your PhD kind of motivated you to, to work on that. Do you see some connection and maybe you could give a, some background about uh, what this PyTorch Struct library uh, was doing? Yeah. Um, one thing I found, and I highly recommend everyone listening to go through this once, is to build a library, you really end up building that library like over and over again until you kind of get it right. So um, when I was a grad student, I interned at Google on their NLP team. And at the time, they were using kind of syntactic parsing for a lot of products. And so it was a, it was a pretty important area. Um, and I wrote there like a library to, to, that would kind of unify a bunch of different parsing, decoding, and training algorithms uh, to run kind of their hardware. And the, the main kind of um, tool for this is this structure called a hypergraph. Hypergraph is kind of just a generalization of a finite state automata to um, kind of, uh, context-free grammars. Um, but it, it kind of looks like this like graph structure where you have this kind of arbitrarily complex connected shapes. Um, and the, the kind of relation or, or why that's important is that we kind of manifest different graphs and prune them and, and get smaller ones. And then we could do search over uh, these graphs. Um, mm -hmm. I think there were two things that made me realize that that, that, that was not going to work in kind of uh, the current world. One was that uh, uh, libraries like PyTorch made it super clear that like everything needed to be differentiable. And that was like super important if you want to include it within uh, a toolkit. Um, and then the other thing was that to run stuff efficiently in Python versus like C++ at Google, you really had to vectorize everything. Um, and so the question was, how do you vectorize kind of complex dynamic programming algorithms um, in a kind of, um, particularly in a kind of batch length-based way? So it was kind of a fun problem to go back and, and think about some of the algorithms you'd learn in an NLP class and how mm -hmm. instead of writing them with for loops to write them uh, with, uh, with tensors or with PyTorch uh, operations. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that, that was quite interesting. And I think the, the final thing I got very interested in that's, that's a little less practical is just how do you test some of these properties? Uh, I, I, I've been teaching a course um, here at Cornell Tech on uh, machine learning engineering, and it goes through mm -hmm. a lot of the kind of software development questions of how do you test probabilistic models, how do you test models with auto differentiation, um, and it's a fun idea of like how do you test a parser, like how do you know if it's working? Um, so it, the library has a lot of kind of um, uh, randomized testing or or distributional testing is just to check that like the entropy is actually the entropy uh, of these approaches. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, maybe on that note, so there seems to be a common uh, thread throughout your research career of kind of caring about the programming aspect of machine learning. So like you were part of Open NMT, uh, then you've developed these other libraries and then uh, software focus in, in the class. Do you see this as, as something you really care about, the programming aspect, and how does it kind of factor into the projects you choose uh, while you're doing research? Yeah, um, I think I always really like this as a historical thing about NLP. So um, as you, you noted, when I was working as a grad student, I, I worked a bunch on translation. And I always really admired the fact that the community had um, done a lot of work to build open source systems to make it possible to utilize and share translation models. So particularly mm -hmm. uh, the, the Moses project um, was just a really inspiring uh, thing to see as a graduate student. Uh, and also, um, I, I really followed the work of Chris Dyer um, and all the awesome things he did to make his systems available or, and um, just he's an amazing software engineer. Um, so I would thought that was a very neat part of NLP, but I, I hated so much that everything was written in Perl and it was just, people didn't spend much time writing it. And I, I just, so much time was spent trying to get this to run. And honestly, I felt that it was a real like barrier of entry for people in the field who had kind of interesting ideas or were interested in different aspects of uh, the community, but mm. just got so discouraged by wading through the artifacts we created. Um, and so when I was at um, um, Facebook AI, I, I sat next to um, Sumit, who was working on on Torch, which later became uh, PyTorch. Um, and it was it was it was very neat to see how how much the deep learning community cared about these tools and about um, how much Yan Lacoon cared about kind of making it easy for people to build neural networks. Um, and so, I don't know, even though I was kind of discouraged a little bit to, to work on that sort of thing as a grad student, once you graduate, you can kind of work on those things if, they, if you think they're interesting or if they think they'll help out. So, um, mm -hmm. so I've, always, I've always found it helpful. Uh, but I, I had no idea like what I was going to become. Like, like for me, it was like OpenNMT was like, Moses. We were just trying to help other researchers. Uh, these days, I, I work with Hugging Face, and they've gone so far beyond this kind of goofy academic coding. Like the the fact that they just have people all over the world running their open source NLP systems or their open source NLP data sets, and they have professional software engineers like coding up the libraries for loading in, I don't know, Hello Swag or whatever the, the new data set is into the, mm -hmm. the Python. It's just, it's just so much cooler than what I could have imagined. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's something that it almost becomes easy to forget that like it's not only the ideas that have made deep learning take off. Like, I really think it's also the good abstractions, the good solid libraries that make it kind of easier to lower the barrier of entry to working with these ideas and can even change what you think is, is possible. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. It's hard to separate out each of those different contributions, but certainly they're they're highly correlated. Mm -hmm. 
So was this kind of a motivation for um, joining Hugging Face? Or yeah, maybe you could speak about like that aspect uh, in addition to your um, academic position. Yeah. So, well, I like structured models and I like probabilistic models and clean modeling and inference. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not blind <laughs> or I don't lie to myself about how transformative just kind of brute force pre-training has been. Um, and I think part of me is very interested in just seeing NLP get deployed and used and easier and made easier to, 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 to play with. Uh, and so, um, a couple of years ago, I moved to Cornell Tech, uh, which is this uh, kind of new university in the center of New York City. Um, and as part of the university, we have a kind of um, a charter to do external engagement with the city. Uh, and so Hugging Face is this startup in Brooklyn uh, that works on kind of open source models for NLP. I've been working there for about two years uh, and I lead, a, or I don't lead, I'm a member of a, a research group there. Um, and um, yeah, we've, we've uh, kind of published a bunch of papers, but we also kind of interact with the rest of the community. Um, I helped write kind of some white papers on the Transformers software and the datasets library. Um, and honestly, I, I mostly learned from them just getting a sense of how people use NLP models, what problems there are, um, and what problems come up with kind of bias of models or efficiency of models or distribution of models um, has been quite interesting. Um, the other thing that's been fascinating is we, we've been running a project for the last year uh, called Big Science, which is a kind of open source style of doing research with um, some researchers or a lot of researchers from around the world um, studying different problems in language modeling. Uh, so it's been interesting to kind of see that kind of style of research or their kind of view on uh, on how research might be done slightly different than in an academic setting. Yeah, so then one of the big um, libraries that's provided is this really solid, scalable implementation of transformers. And so since these, these models are starting to become so effective, um, maybe like a broader picture question, like when we think about inference or decoding methods or models or even the learning algorithm that we use, um, it's always hard to predict the future, but what's your sense of what might change the most in the next 10 years? Will we see fundamentally new models? Um, should we be putting more emphasis into uh, the inference algorithms or will they be trained in completely different ways? My guess is that the kind of model architecture hunting aspect is kind of dying out a little bit, that mm. these models are good enough, uh, or at least at the scale they are, they're capturing things. Um, I could be totally wrong. Uh, I mean, that would be... And that would be really very neat if someone could show something um, worked vastly better at scale. Um, but but kind of some of this empirical success opens up all sorts of other questions. Um, I think there's 
a real question of like what it is we're doing, like what problems are these models really solving, um, and and are they the right one? Uh, interpretability and control continue to be massively hard questions. Uh, I I don't feel like I can predict what's going to happen next or, or or constrain models in any kind of way. Um, mm-hmm. I um, so, so many fun problems in NLP. I, I still kind of feel like long-term coherence is not there. I mean, I know we see kind of examples of it, but it's not, it, it still kind of feels very uncanny valley when you talk about like how ideas develop through some of the samples generation. Uh, yeah, lots of problems in NLP. Um, the kind of area I, I'm interested in is how do you train a large model with the, the hope that with, with how, how do you kind of induce in the model you're training the elements that you'd like to be able to control during inference? So mm-hmm. how do you produce models that behave in, in, in the way that you'd like them to behave kind of downstream? Um, and so that kind of touches on a, a lot of these aspects, um, and it still remains a kind of elusive idea that um, if I actually want to deploy a model for translation, I, I might want it to translate certain words in certain ways. How do I actually build that into the system, or or build myself in a lever so that I can make that happen? Mm-hmm. And then one other thing that uh, came across while reading your thesis was there were a lot of nice visualizations. So maybe I should start, it'll give me some things to tweet out on the thesis review Twitter account. <laughs> but there's all these nice pictures of, of these different structures we've been talking about. So like trees and synchronous grammars and hypergraphs. Do you um, kind of consciously think about visualization as being an important thing for conveying ideas or, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so if I'm honest, I think the causality was that I was applying for jobs and I wrote a very nice job talk and then I went back and added those to my thesis. <laughs> so I would, if I was just writing a thesis, I probably would not have spent as much time on visualization. Um, yeah, so um, visualization is actually an area that my group works in. Um, it, mm. it kind of happened um, by chance. Um, I started collaborating with a postdoc um, next door to me uh, named Hendrik uh, Strobelt, um, and we worked on, a, on several projects together. Um, and um, the, the projects were kind of visualization tools to help people navigate, uh, explore uh, neural networks. And in particular, we were extremely interested in kind of counterfactual queries sort of things that you can't just get out from prediction. Like what what would have been different for my model to have made this prediction, things like that. Um, and um, yeah, I find the visualization way of thinking about problems to be very interesting. It's quite different than the NLP view kind of centers the user and their particular role in the process. It kind of uh, makes very explicit the, the types of questions they're asking and the types of 
particular solutions that, that target those. So questions of, of different visual encodings to target a user with a different knowledge base and a different goal set. Um, and, and I think that way of talking about interpretability for, for me is, is more natural than kind of what at the time I felt like the NLP community was doing, which was kind of um, uh, kind of benchmarks on certain tasks or kind of probing mm -hmm. or other areas like that, which I think is interesting, but wasn't what I was kind of targeting at the time. And so now that I just want to throw like one question in about advising students and there's too many potential questions to ask. So one that I was thinking about is like depth versus breadth. So right now there, it seems like there's increasingly just more and more going on. And one strategy would be to try to learn about as much, uh, many different areas, right? So breadth. Um, and another could be going deep in one area. And I think the fear there is that if you go deep in the wrong area, then you might be missing out. So maybe it's difficult to simplify <laughs> advice into depth versus breadth, but do you think about this when like giving advice to either people you're advising or just people just starting out? Yeah, I think about this a lot. And my, my view fluctuates. So mm. I think, I think my perspective is that these are not hard and fast questions that can be applied generally, that it's very specific to the goals, interests, temperament, and style of a particular student. So I think for myself personally, I have to continually push myself towards depth. And I think in a perfect world, if I were doing research, I would just like to lock myself in the library, go through and just read, I don't know, some great tutorials or textbooks and really learn about a subject in an extremely deep way. Mm -hmm. That being said, I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the right path for every student. There are some students who are extremely organized, extremely able to keep track of various different things going on and, and not let that overwhelm themselves. So if you figure, if you think you're that type of, of student, a kind of uh, like, I don't know, like a Sebastian Ruder type or like an archivist type, uh, mm -hmm. then I think it does make sense to be somewhat broad. I mean, there's a lot of ideas that can come up just because you have captured the literature in a really broad sense um, and you're able to kind of merge ideas together and, and do that sort of cross-cutting research. Um, but I also see a lot of students who who find that a little overwhelming and, and it, it, it distracts from their day-to-day -day work and it distracts them from ever really settling down on an area. So for, for most students, I think depth is the way to go, but, but I, I certainly think there's a lot of really great research that can be done from being, being aware of what's happening and, and, and things like that. I, I, I actually don't, I strongly don't believe that there's like a failure case where you, you try something and then it gets totally scooped. I think that's, uh, I think that's something students uh, kind of uh, over-exaggerate. I, I guess the fear would be you, you work in an area that just doesn't ever become important or relevant as opposed to it becoming kind of too, too, too hot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I agree that there's, there's 
there's rarely a, a general answer that works for everyone, but it's always helpful to hear, yeah, just someone articulate the, the different sides of it. So I think that that's really helpful. So maybe I'll move to the uh, last two questions that I always ask on the thesis review. So the first is, um, we started the conversation talking about optimization, right? And so in optimization, you have an objective function. If you could think of your PhD as being some kind of optimization problem, what would you say was your objective function during the PhD? Was it kind of scientific exploration um, or something else? And then would you say that your objective function nowadays is different or has it stayed the same? Yeah, I, I hesitate somewhat to call myself a scientist because um, I don't, I'm not sure I'm either kind of looking for like natural truths in the world, nor do I think I always kind of use the kind of scientific procedure. Um, mm. So I, I kind of do like engineer as a kind of more, more of what, what, what I'm aiming for. Um, it is very important for me that the end goal be some sort of system or solution um, to, the, to the problem. Um, yeah, I think my objective as uh, a grad student was, was to try to improve the state of the art on some of the tasks I was working for. But, but I think more than that, to, to do it in a way that I felt was um, clean and verifiable. Like, um, I think I sometimes worry that NLP um, can build systems that are, or, or maybe more so in the past, kind of, kind of overly complex or too fit to a certain specification uh, or, um, or even just hard to replicate. Um, and so some of the things I liked about Lagrangian relaxation were like you could provably show under certain circumstances what problem it was solving or, or what model it was providing an answer to. Uh, and so that was very important for me at the time. Um, do I have that same objective now? I, I think I tried to. I, I mean, I realized that the world is much more fuzzy now and that maybe I was being a little overly um, kind of sensitive towards that. Um, but within, I kind of think of it like within what we now know, how can we push towards uh, a world we understand slightly better? Um, so like, accepting, accepting certain facts, accepting the complexities of language or the complexities of learning, how can we, um, how can we build kind of clean scaffolding and, and kind of clean foundations uh, in that world? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually really interesting to hear. And I think it'll resonate with a lot of people. So like sometimes the idea of, engineering or of having a system as a goal can get, um, I don't know, like sometimes people say that that's not the, the goal you should have. Have you found that there's, there's ever difficulties in like having this as your motivation and then uh, getting signed research papers out about the things that you're doing? Or have you found that this actually not an issue and that it's perfectly fine to, um, you know, have your interest or your motivation being uh, kind of driven by engineering type things and system type things? Uh, 
I think it's a matter of kind of writing to the audience. So understanding, understanding what, uh, what you're, what you're writing about or, or who you're writing for and emphasizing the kind of important elements. So like in the, in the process of building a system, if interesting ideas or challenges come up, then that's a great way to inspire kind of research projects. Um, but honestly, I mean, I was told as a student to worry about this as a problem, but in practice, I mean, uh, these days ACL and MLP have demo tracks. They recognize kind of systems white papers. Um, I think the transformer people are having great impact in the field. And like, I don't know, I would say Thomas Wolf, the kind of main author of the transformer paper has had as much impact as, I don't know, anyone I can think of besides maybe like, I don't know, the GPT or BERT authors in the last couple of years in NLP. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that, I think that that's, that's helpful. Um, but I, I mean, I don't want to like, I don't like come to work every day and like hack on stuff. I mean, I think it really? is like, you have to kind of like, uh, you, yeah, I think, I think it's important to have abstractions and have ideas, but I, I do like the kind of connection to the real systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think you've included a lot of good advice just over the course of this conversation, but the last question of the thesis review is always the most difficult one, which is if you had to come up with one piece of advice uh, for a new researcher and um, to make it a bit easier, it doesn't have to be some all encompassing, uh, advice. It, it could even just be a useful heuristic that you've picked up along the way. Um, but one useful thing for a new researcher to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, in the long run, academia rewards novelty. And doesn't in the short term, and there's all sorts of other things that kind of come up. But I, I must say that just like seeing seeing what people do or, or what becomes interesting, it, it really just kind of eventually converge towards something a bit a bit out there or would have seemed out there at the time. And I, I constantly have to remind myself that I'm like in order of magnitude too risk averse than I should be, that mm -hmm. if I feel comfortable about something, it's probably because like it's actually pretty well understood at this point, um, that, that, you, that you have to be a, like a little bit more, you have, to, you have to kind of take a little bit more chances than you feel completely comfortable with at the time. Um, and it, it's something I fail with all the time, but I, I think it's important to remind yourself that like at the end of the day, if you kind of feel like you know what's going on, you're probably not being risk averse enough uh, in your process. Or sorry, you're probably being risk averse. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I say. yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, yeah, thanks so so much for taking the time to do this. It's been fascinating going back and I really enjoyed reading through your thesis. Yeah, it was fun to talk about these different ideas and then to connect it with some other things that you've worked on since. And so thank you for coming in the thesis review. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.